Bibles and turn it to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this evening. We are continuing our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember, this is Solomon looking at life primarily under the sun, but also under heaven. And he is had been, right up for into the last couple of weeks, looking at, at everything down below the sun, how vain everything was, how uh, uh, absolutely futile life was. But then last week he started sounding more like a preacher. He said, you know, remember he said, guard your steps. He said, watch your step. He said, be careful of what you're saying, where you're going, and make sure you do what you say you're going to do. Keep your vows. Uh, he changes direction just a little bit. He's still examining all these different facets of life. There are some problems in life. There are things that perplex us, things that we don't always understand. Uh, but he's starting to, to really get us thinking about eternity more than just the temporal. Now he uses the temporal to get us going in that direction. But you'll see... Really, I think he helps us to see where real joy comes from at the end of this chapter. I want to begin just in verse 8. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent, perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. I'm going to tell you, we see a lot of, how does he word it, violent perversion or perverting of judgment. The violent perverting of judgment. We see that a lot in our world today. I was reading some awful statistics today. It said that, well, the CDC claims that one in four girls and about 1 in 20 boys experience sexual abuse before the age of 18. I mean, that, that's 25% of all young women. I saw a different statistics. Some of it bumped it up to 33%, 1 in 3. I'll just tell you, uh, there are many, many young children being exploited by sex traffickers at the border when the immigration authorities come into contact with 152,000 unaccompanied minors back in 2022. The highest it was ever been up to that point. There is a lot of injustice going on in our world today. There are literally millions of children that are being abused every day. Maybe you fall into one of those statistics. You'd say in your heart, you know, that, that happened to me. Listen, I want to tell you, if that's true, I'm sorry. No one, no one should ever have to live through that. Maybe there's someone under the sound of my voice that has been or is being victimized. I want you to know we're here to help those situations. And we want to take a stand for those that are really being victimized. 
But for those that have lived through the trauma of abuse, I want to be very, very clear. I want to be crystal clear this evening. It is not your fault. No child that has ever been taken advantage of is at fault for being abused. You need to hear that loud and clear. There is evil in this world. There are people that do wicked, horrible things. They might be in some facet of authority. They might have power in this world or money that would get them out of trouble. But I want to remind you this evening that no one, no one escapes the judgment of God. Luke 8, 17 reminds us that nothing, for nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. God knows all things. Jeffrey Epstein thought he was getting away with it for decades. But I'll tell you, when he stood before God, he did not get away with anything. Look at verse 8 again. It says, if thou seest the oppression of the poor and the violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at that matter. For he is that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Now, this verse is not directly talking about sexual uh, uh, abuse. I believe the principle of injustice is found there, absolutely. But here we read something that we wouldn't expect. He said, don't be shocked by these injustices. It's shocking to hear that we shouldn't be shocked. I mean, we think, listen, uh, why is it that all of these bad things happen? And really what is happening is the the preacher is just telling us that we live in a sin-cursed earth full of sin, sinful, and broken people where there is a consistent miscarriage of justice and righteousness. I read a story about a a young boy, actually. Oh, he's probably a man now. His name is Ethan Couch. And he killed four people at the age of 16 when he was driving drunk back in 2013. While he was under the intoxication of drugs and alcohol, he was driving on a restricted license and he was speeding in a residential area, a neighborhood. He lost control of his vehicle and he collided with a group of people assisting another uh, driver on a disabled SUV. Four people were killed in that collision. Two passengers in Couch's pickup truck suffered serious injuries. One passenger suffered complete paralysis. Nine people were injured altogether. Couch was indicted on four counts of intoxication manslaughter for recklessly driving under the influence. And in December 2013, the judge, Dean Boyd, sentenced Couch to 10 years of probation. Before sentencing, Couch's attorneys had argued that Couch had suffered from affluenza. Now, that's not influenza. That's not a sickness. Affluenza 
is uh, really the idea of having so much, giving every, having given everything that he ever wanted, let alone needed, he had no boundaries ever placed in his life. Like our story here in Ecclesiastes, it seems that the rich are able to get away with it, but the poor take the brunt of the miscarriage of justice. It doesn't just stop with, really the idea here is more with the idea of miscarriage of justice having to do with, with government. If you see, if you're in a district over here, if you're in this area over here, and then it says that uh, you just shouldn't be surprised when you find corruption. I mean, when I think about politics in our day and age, I'm surprised when they don't find corruption. That's horrible. But he goes on to say in verse 8, For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. And so, what is he saying? He's saying that, that there are different levels of government. We see that in our own. We have the city, we have the state, and even in the federal, we have different, office, or, uh, different departments, and we have different departments looking over the shoulder of different departments. And, and uh, that idea of regard has the idea to watch over, kind of suspiciously. But it's not with the intent to right the wrongs it has a negative connotation, and it carries this idea of how can I make money, or how can I get ahead from the miscarriage of justice. And so what, what the, the, the writer here is trying to get us to see is that all of this injustice is just piled one on top of the other, and he's kind of setting this thing of how can we have any hope at all? He says not only the people are, are uh, uh, corrupt, but the people that are watching them are corrupt, and there's more corruption. As a matter of fact, he says it goes all the way to the top. In verse 9, he says, Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. And I think what he's getting at here, after he's saying that there's all this corruption in the government, he says if we have good and right leadership, leadership matters. When leadership is good, everybody can profit. But he's saying here, I believe, uh, when you look at the, the context of what he's telling us, he says the king himself is getting gain from those that are working out in the field. Now, it's been that way for centuries. He's saying, where is our hope? Lee Robertson used to say, everything rises and falls on leadership. There's this injustice that he wants to remind us of, of the broken and sinful world in which we find ourselves. Let me tell you, there are some that, that I read after that talk about this idea of the, the uh, verse 9, where, or excuse me, verse 8, at the end of verse 8, where it says, For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they, uh, they say that, that, could have the connotation of, of God is above them. Now, it's in the plural, so I don't think that's uh, necessarily accurate, but I will tell you, the principle is the same. There's nothing that is hid from the eyes of God. 
And so we can see this corruptness and we can see a double standard in the law and we can see that, that uh, there are people that are being taken advantage of and, and sometimes their houses are taken away uh, by the government and, and all this corruption that is going on. And we say, where is there any hope in that? We can know that God sees it. God knows what's going on. And no one's going to get away with anything. And whether it's in this life or the next, there'll be a time where they, uh, uh, if they don't get saved, then they're going to stand and be judged for what they've done. And so while there is injustice in the world, we can, like the Lord Jesus Christ uh, did, according to 2 Peter 2, uh, say, say, listen, we can commit ourselves to the righteous judge. That's God. And there is no one that knows uh, all the facts except for God. Look at verse 10 with me, if you will. He starts talking about injustice and he moves on to this insatiability, this insatious desire that some people have. In verse 10 he says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This also is vanity. What is he saying? He's saying all these people that have, have cheated and lied and stolen to gather all this wealth, they're still not satisfied with it. And so, well, we'll get there in just a second. What is it that you think is going to satisfy you? What do you find satisfaction in? I've probably used this quote a couple of times before, but it's very appropriate here. Uh, when I was studying today, I, I looked up and I found out that John D. Rockefeller is not just the richest American living in his day. When you compare his wealth to what the GDP of America was at that time, he was the richest American in the history of America. And he was asked, how much money is enough? You know what his answer was? Just a little more. Just a little more. He's not satisfied. You could never be satisfied with the accumulation of things. Reminds me of teenagers eating. When I asked my teenager the other day, I had it written down in my journal just to remind myself. He said he was full, okay? It was like January 23rd or something. I don't remember, but, but I'm just telling you, they don't ever seem to get enough. And the same thing is true with those that have an appetite for money. The appetite for more is never satiated with things. The only way to curb that appetite is to learn to be content with what God has given you, what God provides. One author said, rather than always craving more, we are invited to be happy with less because we are satisfied with God. Can you be satisfied with God? Are you satisfied with God? You say, oh, listen, uh, uh, there's people uh, that I know that, that have a bigger house or nicer cars or nicer clothes or uh, nicer electronics. Somebody will always have something nicer. But that doesn't mean that they have peace or joy or contentment. No, John D. Rockefeller was mistaken. And neither can anyone that is just pursuing a paycheck. You know, the one thing about 
this generation, what we call them millennials, that I really appreciate is that they want to have purpose for their life. They want it to mean something. Well, I think that ought to be uh, all of our motivation is just to have a life of purpose and, and meaning and, and we can be content serving the Lord. So he starts with injustice. He talks about this insatiability, but then he spends a long time talking about this instability. Let's look at verses 13 through 17. It says, There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth the son, and there is nothing in his hand. As he come forth out of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing of his labor, which he can carry away in his hand. This also is sore, is a sore evil, that in all points as he came he shall go. And what profit hath he that he labored for the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with sickness. He, he says a lot in there. I'm not going to uh, break down every, every uh, uh, word in here, but the idea is, uh, he's keeping, he's hoarding all this, this money, and it doesn't do him any good. I read that there was a drug cartel that had a, a problem with rats. You see, when you're a drug cartel, you can't take your money to the bank. So they would take it to a warehouse, and they would put it in these on these shelves, and they just had millions of dollars on all these shelves, but these rats were coming in eating thousands of dollars a day. I mean, it wasn't doing anybody any good except for the rats, and I hope it gave them heartburn, right? But they're keeping all of this wealth, but it's to their hurt. I remember reading a story about, oh, I can't remember her name now, but she was one of the richest women of her day, and her son had taken ill, and she was driving around all over town trying to find the cheapest place to go for him to get help. And he ultimately died. He ultimately died. And she just thought, well, I don't want to pay that much for that kind of help. If we're not careful, we'll let finances and money so crowd out our thinking that the Lord becomes a periphery thought. He becomes a, a byword. Well, praise the Lord. But it's really my trust and my security is in my finances. It's what's in the bank account. In verse 14, he says, those riches perish by evil travail. It just means something happens. The stock market has a bubble and it bursts. There's a great depression People lose their money. And when they had, uh, some people that had everything, now they have nothing. I remember as a ch child learning about uh, 19, I think it was 1929, the Great Depression, 1932, somewhere in there. People killing themselves because they'd lost everything. I still don't understand that to this day. But I'll tell you, it helps me understand when I read the Word of God and, and these people, everything they had was wrapped up in their finances, in their money. He gives a little bit of a parable here. He's talking about not only when those riches go away, so when he has a son, there's nothing in his hand. There's nothing to give him. 
There's no money left. And he makes a great observation in verse 15. He says, he, he came forth of his mother's womb, and naked shall return to go as he came. You know, you've heard it before. There's no U-Haul following the hearse. You're not taking it with you. And Solomon makes this great observation. You came into this world with nothing, and when you leave, you're not taking any of it with you. And you can build the biggest pyramid in the world and fill it with the greatest of riches, but in a couple of thousand years, people are still going to find your bones with the riches right there because you cannot take it with you. So you can labor furiously in this life. You can labor to the, the detriment of your family. Uh, you can work long hours and, and your family will, will uh, uh, benefit financially, but they will lose spiritually. But when you die, you're not taking any of it with you. The idea then is maybe we should work for something more than just money. Maybe we ought to have something on our sites uh, more than just uh, 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 under, the, under the sun. Maybe we ought to be looking above the sun and living for something that's more important. It says when it boils down to it, he's going to eat in darkness. He's going to have sorrow and wrath in his sickness. I think that is talking about regret right here. He comes to the end of his life, and what does he have? A big pile of gold, but he has no family, and he has no friends, and he has no memories. Now I'm talking about the extreme, okay? But I'm just saying there's been nothing but a pursuit of riches. Don't look to money as your source of satisfaction. More money really means more problems. Uh, look at verse, if you will, go back up to verse uh, 11. It says, when goods increase, they are increased that eat them. Well, the more money you put on the shelf, the more rats that come in. But the truth of the matter is, when you start accumulating more things, it takes more resources just to maintain those things. You have one car, you have one oil change. You have one set of tires. You have one tune-up. You have one maintenance uh, package to maintain. But you get two cars, now you've got two oil changes. It takes more money just to keep up those things that you already have. Now you need a two-car garage or, or carport if you live in North Carolina. If you only had one, one car garage, you've got to go get a new house then. You say, well, I'm going to rent the old one. Well, you're going to have a bunch of expenses on it. I'm just saying, the more you accumulate, the more there are that come alongside. Now, it says more that eats it up. It's not just the maintenance of the things that we get. You get people that, that start wanting things from you. I was reading a story about some of these professional athletes. Now, I think, I don't know if things are different, but at one time, within seven years of retiring, most athletes... Uh, had, had a, a negative, not negative net worth, but they had almost nothing in the bank. And they put them through classes and, and things like that and counseling now to try to help them from blowing out their money. But, but several of their reports, they're saying there were, there were family members that they trusted with their money to invest it. 
There were people that had come off and, and were asking for help, and they would buy things for people. But when the money dried up, just like the prodigal son, so did the friendship. There's people that are hanging on. There are people that are wanting something from you. You think of some of the people that are the richest people in the world, the Elon Musks or the Jeff Bezos of the world. I guess probably uh, uh, Bill um, oh, Gates. Yeah, he's so yesterday, I can't even remember his name, all right? They don't generally just walk around in public. They have to have bodyguards. Not because they're some political figure that's going, to, but just because people want something from them. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 reminds us of this. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which some, while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That verse sums up this passage of Scripture perfectly. Look down at verse 20, if you'll go all the way down to verse 20. Well, I'm sorry, let's go back up to verse 18. Let's, get our, let's make our way down to verse 20. Behold that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he take under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. He makes this contrast then. There is somebody that is just driving towards wealth. They, they are working. They are, uh, uh, even in the beginning, they're committing injustice. They are doing whatever it takes, and they want more and more and more. And he says there's no, there's no joy in that. There is no happiness, and the people are just bitter at the end of their life. But he says, but when God is the one that has given it to you, there is a difference that we can be satisfied with that. Verse 19 says, Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him the power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. We skipped over it, but it says those that are working out in the field, they're going to get good sleep. Those that have been hustling and scamming and, and committing the injustices towards others to get this gain, they're not going to sleep so well. And what, the, what the, the preacher is saying is simply this. Be content with what God has given you. And if He blesses you, that's a wonderful thing. And life, you're not going to remember the sorrows and the work and the toil because God is going to give you a joy. And I think that joy comes from contentment. Contentment. It's not wrong to, to work hard and get a raise. But if you're just working hard so that you can get that raise, I think you have the wrong motive. You work to please the Lord. If you please the Lord, you're going to please your boss. But if we just have, I need to get that raise so I can get some more money and I've got to get this side hustle and, and I've got to do all these things... I just fear that I, I see it in my own life, especially early as a young man, just driven to make more money. I didn't have a lot of money growing up, so I wanted something. I got to have more money. I tell you, when God worked in my heart about contentedness, when, when, when he allows you to be satisfied with him and what he has blessed you with, it changes your whole outlook on life. I mean, radically different. 
I'm, I'm not in a rat race. I'm not trying to climb to the top of anything. I'm satisfied to do what God has called me to do, and He can bless me however He desires to, uh, but I'm going to be content in what He gives. Praise the Lord for godly contentment. The preacher says, in it there is joy. Are you content? Do you have that joy? Or do you feel like you're in that rat race? Oh, I'll tell you.